Well, that's pretty great. Uh, let, me, uh, let me pray, and we'll get, we'll get into the talk for tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, we remember one of the things you said, and that is that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we recognize that that is true. It's very obvious how much we need food. Um, we get weak and very hungry. Sometimes we just skip one meal. But at a deeper level, what we really need is your truth. We need your words. And we need not just to hear your words, but to turn your words into action, to digest your words, and then to use them in our life. And so tonight I pray that as we hear from your word, that you would um, energize us on the inside, you would give us clarity about what you want us to, to do next, and that you would bring life maybe where there's been struggle or death. And God, we just uh, we bow before you tonight. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> we're talking about authentic Christian. Hopefully you remember that. Our guide is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. The first major section we looked at was about the three decisions that Christians make. And then the three practices, we're in the middle of that, that Christians work on. And then the, the three powers that Christians have access to, the power of Christ. Now, the three decisions, we're going to do just a brief recap again, um, are seen in the three W words that precede Christ in the first four verses of Colossians 3. They are with Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. So Christians are those who look at the life of Christ and they conclude that there's a very clear explanation for the miracles that he did, for the resurrection, for what he taught. And that is that what he said about himself was true, that he is God in flesh, the only one capable of saving us, forgiving us, and the only one worthy of following, of being our Lord. He is, in fact, Savior and Lord. So they decide to attach their lives to him, to be with him, to move Jesus from being just a Savior and a Lord to their Savior and their Lord. And that changes what they live for. They begin to live for what's important in heaven because that's where Christ is. They have now found the secret to life that everybody is looking for. That secret is in Christ. He is the treasure that's hidden. That then alters their expectations on today. They're willing to wait for when Christ returns. Like anyone, they would prefer this to be a good day. But even if it's a bad day, and even if it's a tragic day, they understand that they live in a broken world that will not be made right until Jesus returns. And so they're willing to wait for when Christ returns. Now, with those three decisions in place, Christian followers or Christ followers go to work on the implications of their decisions. That's what we're looking at. They put in place three practices. These practices are seen in three lists that are found in verses 5 through 14 of Colossians 3. The first list contains the essential training instructions on how to reduce our ongoing tendency to form God-level attachments to almost anything in this world, to make idols out of almost anything. That's what drives our sin. And what we looked at this morning was how to put those things to death, not with a quick 
sword swipe or a magic bullet, but by starving these things, by no longer nourishing them. Now tonight we turn to the next two lists. These are the practices that together help us learn how to love people. The first is the put-off list or the put-away list. So let me read this list to you in Colossians 3, verses 7 through 10. It says, In these, things we're just going to list here, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, so this is the way you were, but now you must put them all away. And here's the list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So this list, like all of the lists in the New Testament, are not just a a random set of words. These are not just random activities for us. These are common patterns of how we tend to relate to each other. No one has to train you how to be angry. You just are angry sometimes. This is the way we all are. These are the paths that we all naturally walk in. That's what this verse says. We've walked in these paths. In fact, these patterns are so common to us that it would be fair to say that we lived in them. This is how we live. This, This was just the way we are. Not always, but these are the dominant patterns of our life. Now, for authentic Christians, these patterns increasingly become a thing of the past. Notice the change in the wording. They are the way we once walked, but not so much now. They are how we were living, but not as much now. So how do we change our ways? How do do these become patterns of the past, not continuing patterns of the present? Well, it's through practice. What it says here is we have to put off the old self with its practices. The old way of doing things. Those those had practices to them. Kind of like what we've talked about earlier is the way we are in life is not magical. We have learned the way we are through years of practice, not by just big and sudden decisions. So you grew up in an environment. Maybe it was a, a good home, maybe it was not a good home. But as you grew up, you learned different patterns maybe from your parents, maybe from siblings, friends. And you practice these patterns. And they are so natural to you and they're so natural to me that we don't even need to think about them anymore. Something happens in life and we just go to our well-rehearsed ways of living. We've learned these things through years of practice. So if we're going to put on the new self, now that we've decided to follow Jesus Christ, we're going to become different. If we're going to do that and we're going to change the way we treat people, It's not going to happen overnight, just like getting rid of idols. It's not just going to be an instant decision. It's going to take a lot of practice. So these two lists that we're going to look at tonight contain the essential training practices that we will need to work on repetitively if we're going to learn how to love people. Now, I wish it were quicker. I wish it were easier. But anything new, anything big, You can't just decide to do and hope to pull it off. You've got to work at it. You've got to practice. 
about five years ago, my um, back started giving me problems. Happens sometimes when people get older. You may have heard of these things. And um, it would just go out on me for no apparent reason. I read a list recently of some comedian saying, you know, signs that you might be getting old. And one of the signs was you get hurt sleeping. <laughs> you might be getting old. If you wake up and you, you injured yourself sleeping and you don't know what happened. Well, that, that was kind of what was starting to happen to me. I was getting injured sleeping. I'd wake up and I don't know what I did. So um, as I went to the doctors and you know, talked to some people that you know, were my age or maybe have dealt with this, I discovered that one of the core reasons was my core. You know, that the central core muscles. I had been working too hard and not working out hard enough, and my core muscles were not strong enough to support my aging back. So I decided that what I need to do is strengthen my core. That, that decision did not help me one bit. <laughs> because I had to turn that decision into practice. I had to actually strengthen my core. Now, my practicing of strengthening my core has two forms. And this is the way any practicing is. There's always two sides to that coin. There are new things that you do, and then there are old things that you stop doing to make room and time for the new things that you're doing. So I'm doing new things now like plyo and stretching. And there's old things that I'm no longer doing that I used to do, like helping people move. I don't do that anymore. Someone says, hey, we're moving. Could you help? It's like, nope. (laughs) Those days are, are in the past. I don't do that anymore. So I've had to put new things into my week, and I've had to take out some old things to make room for the new practices. And it's the same if you're serious about learning how to love like Jesus tells us to love. It's not just a decision. It begins with a decision, but the decision isn't going to change you. It's the practices that will change you. You can't just crank up the emotion. That's not really what love is. Love is primarily the decision to sacrifice for the benefit of another. Sometimes you do that with great joy, and other times you do that struggling. But both are love. So the two lists identify the things that we're going to have to put off, the patterns of not loving, and then the things that we're going to have to put on, the patterns of loving. And these are things that we will practice throughout the rest of our life. So let's begin with the put-off list. These are uh, the practices of manipulation. If I were to summarize the entire list, this first put-off list, it would be a list of what it means to manipulate people. The main reason we don't love others that well is that we're too busy using them to meet our needs. Now, if we would just ask people to help us with what we want or be honest with what we need and let them decide whether they want to help us or not, that would be fine. But to ask someone to help you or to be honest and tell someone that you have a need that they could meet, that's a humbling thing to do. It's humbling to admit that you need something. And there's a giant risk whenever you ask someone for something. And the risk is they could say, nah. They could turn you down. So the common pattern of trying to get what we want in relationships, what we want people to do for us, how we want people to treat us, is not just honestly stated to them. 
But instead, we, we secretly try to manipulate them into giving us what we want. Webster defines manipulation this way, to control to one's own advantage. It's, it's, it's attempting to try to get leverage on someone, to try to figure out a way where you can get them, without them knowing it, to do what you want them to do. Now, no one has to teach us how to do this. It comes natural. And I'm, I'm telling you, we all do it. Everybody does this. We learn this early. No one has to teach this to us. This just rises out of our brokenness, out of our sinful hearts. One time when my son was three, he was in the bath, and he always loved to stay longer than he was supposed to. And so at this point, I gave him a five-minute warning. I said, son, you know, five more minutes, then it's time to get out of the bath and get to bed. So I went in there and said, all right, it's time to get out. And um, he looked at me, and his eyes started watering. And he said, why are you so mad at me? And I, I mean, I was just, what? <laughs> I mean, all I'd said was, son, it's time to get out of the bath. And now he's like, little chin's quivering. Why, why are you so mad at me? Well, I wasn't mad. But the last thing I wanted to be was an angry parent. So for the next 15 minutes, I tried to explain to him that I wasn't angry. I, I spent 15 minutes trying to rationally explain to a three-year-old <laughs> that I wasn't angry. At about the 15 minute, I realized, hey, 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 just wait a minute. For the past 15 minutes, he's been sitting in the tub. <laughs> he got a 15-minute extension. And I thought, oh, he's good. <laughs> he is really good. It turns out, I said, all right, you're going to bed. He was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, the gig was up. Now, that, that's pretty amazing. He had not been to any manipulation classes. And, and really, if you were to diagram that, that's pretty complex stuff. To use your own emotions, to, to actually tear up. I mean, that's high-level <laughs> stuff. And he, he's pretty good at it. He had me wrapped around his finger. You know, you're familiar with that phrase. That, that phrase comes from the way a person controls a yo-yo. Remember yo-yos? You put the string around the finger and you send it down, then it comes back up. That's what we try to do with people. We try to get some people wrapped around our fingers. We send them out to do our bidding and bring them back for the next assignment. And then we send them out again, and then we bring them back. What we try to do is we try to find leverage that we can use to send them out to do our bidding. Now, this happens very subtly. I didn't know my three-year-old son had gained control of me. At least for 15 minutes, I didn't know. He honestly, he wasn't old enough to really clearly understand what he was doing. In fact, the word manipulation is the first big word that we taught, taught our kids. I mean, they, by this point, we were using the word manipulation. And they didn't fully understand it, but we would continually say, you see that, what you just did? That's called manipulation. Because it defines so much of how we relate to each other. We try to find leverage. We try to get an advantage. Now, manipulative strategies tend to develop in one of two streams. 
There are other forceful strategies. We try to push people into doing what we want them to do. Or there are deceptive strategies. We try to pull people into doing what we want them to do. On the deceptive side, one of the biggest strategies is to make people feel guilty when they're really not guilty. Because guilt can get people to do a lot of stuff. If we try to make them feel guilty, then they'll just come running to us, and they're not really guilty. That's a pull strategy. So it's either push strategy or a pull. So we either push people to do what we want them to do or we trick them into doing what we want, we want them to do. Now, the first list is the push list. Here's the list. We're just going to go through this. The first one is anger. And again, I'm going to use an extended definition of what the Greek word means that these lists are translated from. It means to swell up. That's what it means to be angry. Now, think of a puffer fish. You expand your profile when you get angry. So if you are not getting the attention that you'd like, how do you enlarge your profile? You get angry. Now you've got everyone's attention. Now, the right to tell people what to do is legitimate in certain contexts, but it's limited. In other words, if you're a parent, you really do have the right to tell your children, you know, hey, it's time to get ready for bed. You have the right to do that. If you're a professor, you do have the right to say, if you want to get an A, this is what you need to do. They, they have the right to do that. They can't tell you what to do outside of the classroom, but in the classroom, they have the right to do that. If you're in leadership at, on, on the job, you have the right to tell those under your leadership how, how we're going to do this project and, and what their role is going to be. You have the right to tell people what to do. But the problem is, most of life, we don't have the right to tell people what to do. And we have been created by God with the freedom to decide for ourselves what we're going to do. But that leaves us in a position of wanting people to do stuff that we don't have the right to command them to do. So to cover the gap between what we have the legitimate right to ask people to do and what we don't, we swell our profile up. We get angry. That's what anger really is. Us strutting around trying to act like we deserve more than we really do and that people should do what we want them to do. The next word is wrath. This is the word for consuming desire. It's the exact same word that was used for evil desire in the first list. This, if you remember, is when I was talking about pushing off down a sleddy, icy hill. What this is saying is, if you open up anger, it gets out of control usually. Your heart becomes overrun with the emotion of anger. You've pushed yourself down that icy hill and now, now it's out of control. When we decide to get angry, we don't get to choose the size that we're going to swell up to. In other words, we never get to say, you know, I think anger level four would be all that I need on this. So I'm just going to dial it up to a four. Now, now I'm going to need a level seven anger display. No, we never do that. We just get angry. We just pop the inflation cork, and then it takes off. And depending on how they interact, this thing can be a forest fire that burns all kinds of things down. So we get angry, and then we lose control. And then is the next word, malice. This means to bring trouble to another. 
The idea is, is rather than now just emotionally being upset with someone, we're now looking for ways to punish them, to make them pay. That's what malice is. I mean, how do people tend to respond when you get angry? Well, some will get out of the way. They don't want, to, they don't want any conflict, and they'll give you what you want, or they'll just get out of the way. But a lot of people, they match your anger with their anger. Especially if they've seen you puff up a lot. They realize, all right, you're just being ridiculous again. So what we do then is to, to get them to give us what we want, we go to the next level. We work to find a way to punish them for their noncompliance. Now, we feel completely justified in this. We don't realize we're asking for what we don't deserve to receive. We don't realize that. It feels to us like we're justified. They should treat us this way. They should give us this. And because they're not, we're going to punish them now. So we either withdraw maybe emotionally, or we give them the silent treatment, or we find a way to block them from something that they want, but we make them pay. If that doesn't work, we move on to the next level. That's slander. This means to defame somebody. The idea is we go public with our anger. We gather an audience for our anger. You know, when we get angry with someone, rarely do we keep that anger all to ourselves. If you, I wouldn't recommend eavesdropping, but if just in the course of hanging out places, if you just happen to listen to other conversations, most of the conversations is someone talking badly about somebody else who's not there to the person they're talking to. That is most of conversation. You'll hear this, and I couldn't believe, and then they did this, and then that, that person's not there. They're slandering them. So we broadcast our anger. And in doing so, we are manipulating the listeners to either agree with our anger or feel our wrath. You know what happens when you're in a conversation and you tell someone, you know, this person, they treated me so wrong and I'm so upset with them. And the person that you're talking to realizes, you know what, I better nod my head this way or I'm going to be the next target of your anger. And so your anger spreads like wildfire. Then we get to obscene talk. That means to disfigure somebody. We use our words to paint a distorted image of them in the eyes of others. And the result is more and more people get angry. And our anger spreads, and even though we might eventually calm down, well, it's now out of our hands. In an attempt to get someone to do what we want them to do or treat us the way we think we deserve to be treated, we do a tremendous amount of damage. That's the push stream of manipulation. One of the great indicators that either you're manipulating or somebody's trying to manipulate you is if there's anger. Anger is the the great red light on the dash saying, manipulation in progress. (laughs) That's how you know. You're either angry because you're getting ready to manipulate somebody or you're angry because someone's trying to manipulate you. The other stream of manipulation is deception. This is what it says in in the passage. Do not lie to one another. That's all it says. It doesn't go into any more detail. Don't lie to each other. You know, rather than bluster to get our way, we try to control the facts in order to either trick people into giving us what we want, or we, uh, we use emotional deception to get them to give us what we want. You know, one of the common tactics of manipulation is we exaggerate our emotions, our dark emotions, to get people to come to our aid. 
you know, if you're sad, it's fine to be sad. But one of the things you discover if you're sad is how do people respond to you? Oh, are you okay? Now you've got some minions to do your bidding. So what some people do is they decide, I'm just going to be sad for a little bit longer than I really need to be. Or you're overwhelmed. This is what I run into a lot right now. It's people just walking around just, <sighs> oh, you know, and you're like, what? Oh, my life is just crazy. I haven't slept for, you know, on and on it goes. And the purpose sometimes can just be, I need help. Could you pray for me? But sometimes the subtle purpose is, I need help. And you better help me because I'm overwhelmed. Or we get disappointed and we linger on it. Or we get hurt and we don't let go of it. Because all of these are victim emotions. Now, these emotions by themselves are not necessarily bad, but if we cross over the line from being legitimately sad to using that sadness to get people to do what we want them to do, now we're taking the victim approach to life. And what victim, what victimizing, or what, what the victim approach, rather, is, is, is it draws people to yourself. It makes you the magnet. You're drawing people to yourself. And when you're doing that, you're not loving. Loving is outward focus. You're drawing people close to you. So a good question to ask yourself, this is just for you, but what's your favorite flavor of manipulation? Are you a pusher or are you a puller? Do you prefer pushing people to get to do what you think they should do? Or do you prefer kind of the more deceptive pulling to get them to do what you want? Now, We've all practiced these. And if you'd, if you'd like to do a little more thinking on this, just write down the name of somebody you're upset with. That's a good place to start working. That probably is an indication that manipulation has gone on by you or by them, most likely both of you. So that's the put off the practices of manipulation. The next list, which is the, the final list of the three, is put on the practices of love. So once you're working on practicing to no longer treat people as minions to do your bidding, but people who have the right to do what they decide to do, who you decide to love and sacrifice for, now you're ready to practice love. So here's the list of love, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's what this list is. This is the longest list, because love is the biggest challenge. So here's, again, not just a random list. This is a list of of how you build momentum towards really loving people. This is in, in the order. First, you start with compassion. That's the first on the list. The Greek word literally means to feel with or to have pity for somebody. In other words, you are moved by the needs of another person. How do you develop compassion for somebody? I mean, you can't just stare at someone long enough and develop compassion. 
You can't just muster it up. The best way I know for developing compassion for another person is to learn their story. It's easy to treat people as objects to be used for your purposes until you get to know their stories. Because objects don't have stories. People have stories. And those stories are filled with fears and failures and joys and sadnesses and dreams. And once you hear a person's story, at least some of it, it's really hard to not feel with them. So one of the best ways to develop compassion for someone is to ask questions. Take an interest in their story. And when you do, your compassion will go up. One of the things that's interested me over the years is as you talk with people just in general, in the public, um, what I've noticed is I can ask 10 questions of somebody and they will never ask a single question of me. That's increasingly prevalent. That's because we live in a culture that is becoming more and more isolated and lonely and they don't know how to love. That doesn't mean, it's like, hey, I've asked three questions. No, you you just keep loving. This is a skill, and this is a practice. That's what a practice is. It's a skill. So maybe you need to start here. Just when you're in conversations, maybe the rest of the time here. Just try to think of some questions. Tell me more about this, and what about that? Just take an interest. Ask questions. That develops compassion. The next is, comp- is kindness. Kindness means to give what is helpful. So here's the order. First, your heart is moved with compassion, and then you act on that compassion. The question is, how do you know what would be helpful for a person? Well, that requires thought. The idea is, if I was in their shoes, knowing this situation, what would be helpful to me? It takes time to be kind. This is why it's so rare. You, you just can't do drive-by kindness. Really. You have to stop long enough to think of what's going on with this person, what's their situation, and what is something practical that I could do to be of help. And then do that. It doesn't take a lot of time, but it does require you to pause. The next one is humility. In the Greek... This literally means low-minded, but it doesn't mean stupid. The idea is it's talking about the angle from which you approach people. You don't approach people from a kind of above-them angle with absolute certainty that arrogance provides. No, you, you approach them in humility from a kind of below angle. Now, what we tend to do is we tend to size people up put them in a category, and then treat them accordingly. We tend to not relate to people in humility. We form a first impression and a second impression, and then we kind of figure this person out. But you see, humility realizes that people are very complicated. So certainty is not fitting. Yes, you may appear to be this way, and yes, you may appear to be that way, but I don't even have any idea who you really are. So I'm going to take an interest in you. I'm going to ask questions. I'm not going to be arrogantly 
certain that I, I've got to read on you and I know who you are. No, I, I'm going to be curious. I'm going to learn. So instead of quick conclusions and statements, they spend a lot more time listening, a lot more time asking questions, and a lot more time praying about people. The next one is meekness. Meekness means to be gentle when provoked. So the first three items that we've looked so far on the list are about how to move towards people in love. The next two, starting with this one, is how to absorb the poor treatment that other people give us. That's what knocks a lot of people out of the love game. They're all fired up about loving people until someone treats them badly. And it's like, all right, I'm done with this. So just because you decide to love doesn't mean everyone around you is going to do the same. So if your love is conditioned, this was my challenge that I discovered when I got married. If my love was conditioned on being treated well, then you're just not going to get very far in your effort to love people. In other words, you're going to have to learn how to love in the face of people not loving you. That is a tremendous challenge. That requires a lot of practice. Last year there was, um, well, actually, let me think of an example that was even further back. There was um, a, um, a guy that was critical of me and basically believed that I was not the right leader for Seabreeze anymore and decided to go public with it. And once I heard about this, I mean, I could, I could feel the anger. I mean, that was my first thought. It's like, who in the world does he think he, you know, and I just, I was Mr. Pufferfish just getting all inflated in my own heart. And I realized that, you know, there's probably some things that I need to say in response but I needed to not get angry at him. And I need to be meek, which means gentle when provoked. He poked me with a stick, and I need to not lash back. The challenge that I've had with weakness over the years is weakness or meekness feels weak, doesn't it? It just feels like he's getting away with it. Until you remember the meekness of Christ. He's our example in meekness. I mean, people didn't just criticize Jesus. They spit on him. I mean, I, I've often thought and imagined the scene of Jesus hanging on the cross in all of that pain, insults being hurled at him, and, and people spitting on him. So Jesus is the member of the Trinity who created everything. So here's someone created by Jesus, and he sustains everything, the breath that they are taking that will allow them to propel the spit is breath that Jesus just gave them. So if anybody could have taken care of business right then, it would have been Jesus. And he didn't. He allowed them to hurl insults on him. Now, there are times where you need to respond, but usually not initially. The initial response needs to be meekness. And then patience. Patience is another one of those combination words in Greek. It means long-enduring. It's kind of like endure and then endure. Do it for a long time. 
That's because people won't just treat you poorly on occasion. They're like you and me. They get caught up in their own worlds, and they're going to run over you without even thinking about it. And this is just going to happen until the day you die. So if we're going to love people, we're going to have to put up with a lot. The two parts to patience in a relationship are mentioned next. We need to bear with one another, which means we just need to put up with a lot. And then we're going to have to forgive each other. Oh, that is so hard. Here's the thing about forgiveness, is if you don't learn how to forgive, if you don't practice forgiveness, pretty soon there's going to be no one left for you to love. Because everyone in your life is eventually going to do wrong to you. So we just have to learn how to forgive. Why should we forgive? Well, as it says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The most helpful thing for me in the hard work of forgiving is to flip the script and put myself in the position of how much forgiveness I need by God. That's, for me, that, that's when I begin to, begin to get a breakthrough in being willing to forgive somebody else. In this situation, I was talking about a group of these individuals got together and they started their own blog about how awful of a person I was. <laughs> so I had a blog about me. <laughs> I was... I guess that's not famous, that's infamous, I guess, if it's a bad thing. So I was infamous for a while. And I, um, I went on the blog one day just to read what they had said, and it was just one lie after another. They claimed that I said this, and I never said that, and I did this, and I never did that. And I was furious. So I went for a walk around the block, basically to vent to God. And I was this is not fair, and after all that I've done, and how could they treat me, and all, you know, I was laying out my claim, claim before God. And the, the thought occurred to me, and it was a thought I believe by the Holy Spirit, and the thought was this, aren't you glad they don't know the truth about you? And I thought, what? And that's when I realized they were making up lies about me because they didn't know the truth about me. I'm not saying that I'm like some secret double life going on. But God says, I know everything about you. I know every evil thought you've had. I know every single deed that you've done. And yet I've forgiven you. Aren't you glad these guys don't know about you what I do? They've had to make stuff up. Because they don't know what I know. And at that moment, I was, I was just overwhelmed with the fact that God had forgiven me. And at that point, I thought, you know, I need to forgive them. So I did. And then three weeks later, I had to do it again. And three months after that, I had to do it again. And just about two months ago, I saw one of them, and I had to do it all over again. But we're going to have to forgive. It's a two-way street. If we want God's forgiveness, we're going to have to give give it to other people. Then it says, and above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the summary statement. So here's the the theme we've been talking about is love. This this pulls everything together in perfect harmony. Now, harmony is a great word for this. Harmony is used usually in two categories. It's used to describe relationships that are working well together. It's also described uh, for music when instruments are working together in harmony. My wife and I love to 
attend the orchestra, you know, classical music. Uh, she used to play oboe. I used to play violin, so we have a little, little history. So we love to go to the orchestra. I don't know if you've ever been, but it's a fascinating thing to see. You've got you know, a full orchestra, all of these instruments that sound very differently. And it's just amazing the beautiful music that can come out of a good orchestra. And that's what this is saying about love. Love can take all kinds of people, all kinds of unique instruments, all kinds of people and all kinds of circumstances and pull them together into the beauty of perfect harmony. But for that to happen, you need two things. You need individuals who have practiced their instruments well. That's what these two lists are. These two lists are basically the scales of love. If you ever played an instrument, you know one of the keys to building skill on the instrument is to learn the scales. That's, that's what these lists are. These are the scales of learning how to love. So if there's going to be harmony, you need individuals like you and me who have practiced their instruments well. And then you need a conductor to bind everything together. Jesus is a conductor. Without Jesus, there is no harmony. Harmony between you and other people doesn't just happen the moment you decide to be with Christ. You get the conductor. Now you've got to practice the scales. So what I would recommend is pick one of these words. Maybe as we've gone through the list, you've thought, Ooh, I really need to work on that one. I hadn't thought of that. So let that be your first scale. Practice it. Maybe if it's kindness, say, all right. I'm, I'm going I'm to think of three people, and I'm going I'm to work on coming up with an act of kindness this next week for each one of them. Do that. Maybe do that for a few weeks. Do that for a month. Then maybe work on the, the compassion. You know, I'm, I'm going to ask questions of people. Work on that scale. Just practice it. So these words are about practicing, not performing. None of us do these perfectly, but we do practice them. We get our instruments out, and we run the scales. How can you tell if somebody's practicing? You know, on the instrument, how can you tell if someone's practicing? Over time, they get better and better. If the musicians up here never practice, we'd know. Not because we were there to see you didn't practice today but because, well, we could tell the harmony wasn't, well, there wasn't harmony. Now I can tell they've practiced. That's what we need to do if we're going to love. So if then you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christian, you've put off the old self with all the well-practiced patterns of manipulation, and now you're on track to becoming a very different kind of person. The kind of person who is being renewed in the knowledge of what it means to have been created in the image of God. That's an interesting phrase. What does that mean? Well, we've been so consumed in the patterns of relating and anger and deception that we've forgotten the most critical role that we've been created to, to play, and that is to love people. We've, we've lost sight. We, the greatest assignment that we are given is to love well. To love God first and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's that's at the center of this. It's not the add-on to life. It's at the core of life. And we forget 
We've lost the knowledge of what it means to be created in the image of God. That's why we're created. We've been given the capacity to love like he does. So when we practice and we get better and better at love, something amazing happens that you really don't see in human history much. Here's this verse that's wedged in between these two lists. Here's what happens. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, that's not a Star Star Wars feature, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What is this? And why is this here? This was the current list 2,000 years ago of the categories that determined how people should be treated and which groups hated the other groups and which groups looked down on the other groups. But what it's saying is if you're practicing, if if you're in Christ and you're practicing the scales of love, these barriers, these common fights and dissonance that occurs throughout all of history no longer exists for you. There aren't people divisions anymore. He's all that matters. Christ is all that matters. Now that, when that happens, that's a rare thing. So if you're a Christian, you will practice putting off your old patterns of anger and manipulation. And if you're a Christian, you will not wait until things like compassion and kindness and humility and patience towards people just naturally bubble up in you, because that won't happen. Instead, like a musician, you will practice the scales of those instruments so that they can be used when Christ conducts them. So, let's read these verses. And then I'll close in prayer. Colossians 3, 17 through 14. I don't have words for you to emphasize, so we can just read them like normal people tonight. Okay? So this is Colossians 3, 17 through 14. So I'm going to read, but join me as we read this together out loud. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your unrelenting love for us. And we live in a world that is full of conflict, full of division, full of manipulation, full of rage and anger. And we know where all that comes from because that wells up naturally inside of our hearts. But we have decided to be with you. We've attached our life to you both now and into eternity. 
And because you are raising our life, we now have been given the opportunity to be very different in the way we relate to each other. We have no idea about how to solve the problems of the world and all the conflicts in this world. But we know what to do about how to love the people you've placed around us. So God, we work on that. Give us insight into which notes on these scales that you want us to practice, either the putting off of manipulation or the putting on of love. And as we practice this, God, I pray that you would repair broken relationships and that through us, the harmony that comes out of the gospel might spread. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.